unceded and occupied homelands of the Musqueam. This is Patchwoods. Across intersections and oceans, we hope to offer you a collection of stories about emerging and established leaders working to make change in their communities. For this episode of the Patchworks podcast, we recorded our conversations with Dr. Zain Yao about their new book, Disaffected, the Cultural Politics of Unfeeling in 19th Century America, before a live audience in the John and Tierney Diggins Piano Lounge at Green College at the University of British Columbia. Well, good evening, everyone. My name is Rodney Stair. Uh, I'm a master's student with the Interdisciplinary Studies graduate program at UBC who researches the experiences of queer youth navigating overlapping public health crises. I'm also one of the hosts this evening of our, our episode with Dr. Zain Yao. And the podcast that we're a part of is called Patchworks. And the goal of Patchworks is to create space, I guess, on the airwaves for emerging and established indigenous, black, and racialized community leaders, both scholars, folks on the ground, and everything in between. So that's sort of the goal of the podcast. And over the last couple, I guess last year, we've had the opportunity to bring in folks from across the sort of spectrum of study and activity, including uh, our first episode with Kalani Reyes, who's this delightful Chamorro climate activist, scientist, and such. And then also we're very lucky to be joined today by Dr. Zanya, who will be talking with our about their book. But of course, I would also like to introduce our co-speaker, host this evening, Serena. So if you'd like to tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you, Rodney. And hello, everyone. Um, it's wonderful to be here, and I'm delighted to be uh, able to speak with uh, Dr. Zain Yao today as well. Um, I'm a PhD student uh, in English here at UBC, and my research interests are aesthetics of absence, abject theory, lyrical kenosis in contemporary Black poetics. To begin, uh, Dr. Yao, would you be able to introduce yourself to our listeners? So, hello, it's a real pleasure to be back um, at UBC where I did my postdoc from 2016 to 2018 on a course, the Ancestral Unseceded uh, Traditional Territory, the Musqueam People, which is also where I really started working on changing my PhD dissertation into the book you see before you today, when all is gold foil <laughs> glittery glory. And it sort of feels like a way of trying to give back in some sort of way that I feel like I've suddenly very quickly ascended to another phase of my academic career. Like I have to say that I can no longer pretend to be a baby, I suppose. And in fact, I've recently got an invitation that said like, oh yes, we reached out to senior people in the field. I was like, wait, wait, how, how, how did I get there? I feel like I just got, you know, I just hit adulthood. I didn't realize I got promoted to seniority anyway. I wish that my paycheck would reflect that at least. Um, so I am currently um, a lecturer, which is the UK equivalent of a tenure track assistant professor um, in American literature to 1900 at University College London. And by London, I don't mean Ont uh, Ontario, I mean England, just to clarify, because Serena here is from London, Ontario. And indeed, when I first got my job, um, it was funny to, that the responses I got from other Canadians was usually when I said I was moving to London, you know, oh, the sort of polite pity <laughs> is a generous way to put it. But I was like, no, I'm actually going to like the London, London. And they're like, oh, and then, like, and then they'll, they'll congratulate me. Um, and at UCL, I'm also the co-director of QUCL, which is our queer studies network uh, that goes across the university. Um, I also have the distinction of being the co-host of the long-running podcast, PH Divas, with Dr. Liz Wayne, 
podcast about academia, culture, and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. And I'm also a BBC Radio 3 HRC New Generation thinker. And my first book, which we're discussing today, just came out from Duke University Press at the end of 2021 called Disaffected, The Cultural Politics of Unfeeling in 19th Century America. In terms of other interesting, quirky things about myself, there was a TikTok video that cited me that went minorly viral. So I feel like that's pretty cool. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us today. And thank you. I guess just to, to begin, before we get into your book, although obviously that will be the, the star of today, <laughs> besides yourself, of course, um, can you tell us a bit about, because as you mentioned, you're returning Greeny, can you tell us a bit about your time at Green and what that what your academic journey had looked like right up until that point? So before I came to Green, I was doing my PhD at Cornell um, from 2010 to 2016. And then I was lucky enough to get a short postdoc to work with Dr. Mary Chapman in the English department at UBC. And I had the good fortune of meeting her because we both worked on the same author, Suisun Farr, the first Asian North American woman writer. Um, and we'd actually brought her to campus because she happened to also be a former student of my current PhD supervisor, Shirley Samuel. So that's a bit of like academic lineage there. I'm originally from from Canada, from Toronto. I did my um, undergrad at University of Toronto, my first uh, master's degree at Dalhousie in Halifax. Um, And so I guess you could sort of see the sort of triangle shape of my academic trajectory to that point. I was at Green from 2016 to 2018. And some Greeny trivia I'd like to to share is, um, I don't know what we call it now, like the first month where you have all those activities you do. Welcome month. Welcome month. I'd have to to just emphasize that. both to, both years in Welcome Month as part of the winning team, and especially in the first year, I was the the end of single individual that got the most points. That I think is something about my personality. Perhaps not the best things about my personality, to be honest. But but yes, I know my partner's rolling his eyes right now, <laughs> probably at the sound of that. Um, and like Green was just a really great place for me to be because. I'd been very deeply enmeshed in many different communities at Cornell, and it sort of broke my heart to be severed from so many people I cared about. And so when I was coming to UBC, I was like, can I find something that's is equivalent to being immersed in a residential community where it's also about like living and learning together? And so that's what I really sought. And when I came to it as the welcome month anecdotes indicate, I sort of threw myself into it wholeheartedly as a way to sort of make up for all the displacements and the sort of effective severing that I felt um, making the shift back to Canada to Vancouver, which I, where I knew fewer people than I'd known um, in the States when I had gone before, for instance. And yeah, trying to make this new identity and build a place in this new community, uh, which has included things like, and I apologies to people on the Green College listserv because I had uh, Rodney send this around. Like, I do remember that once I managed to convince, like, at least half a dozen Greenies to watch uh, Tarkovsky's Solaris with me in the TV common room. Um, because we had gone to go see 2001 A Space Odyssey, and I was like, oh, well, this was the Russian sci-fi response to 2001. And then somehow I managed to get people to watch Tarkovsky, which, I have to say, no, no mean feat. Thank you very much. But then we also binge-watched, um, like, quite a lot of anime together. We watched The Westworld, so forth. I think that we had a real community that was about, like, the a joyous celebration of the consumption of geeky media um, that was also really important for even my scholarly work that I, I mentioned over dinner. Um, it was rewatching Avatar The Last Airbender with um, a dear friend, Cavalina, um, who is Alaska native, that helped me, uh, that sort of inspired me to end up writing an article that came out in the Journal of Asian American Studies on thinking about like Asian 
uh, colonialism, Asian North American settler colonialism, and Arctic Asian indigenities because of being in conversation with her. So I feel like that's very long-winded, but hopefully gives people a sense of my time here. I mean, no, that's incredible. I mean, you sort of painted a picture of you, you know, coming to a new space and winning, really, yes. multiple times as a champion. <laughs> I'm, um, I'm overly competitive. <laughs> and then also, yeah, as I think as you, as you shared before, just like creating community um, and then also sort of being inspired by these interactions to kind of like, you know, step a little further, you know, watching Avatar The Last Airbender and so forth. And I know concurrent to like you, I suppose like, you know, being a champion and all these other things. <laughs> You also, as you mentioned, were running a podcast, mm -hmm. which is now in its sixth season. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more about this podcast? Oh, yes. Um, so looking around the room, it's a real pleasure to see many other Greenie alums that have joined me, including one for, um, previous guest on PhDivas, Wajiha, where she, and she gave um, us, I did a fascinating interview with her about um, whether or not people care about Muslims uh, students protesting in India at the time. And this is like during like the early days of like the rise of Hindu nationalism to the fore in, in India. And thank you so much, Rajia, for that. So a little bit to, to cycle back. I briefly mentioned that PhD Divas is this podcast I co-host with Liz. And Liz is um, a, a biomedical engineer and works on cancer immunotherapies. And she's currently at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. But originally we were doing our PhDs together at Cornell in a residential community, much like Green College. Uh, but at the time, we were working as what was called graduate resident fellows um, and amongst upper year undergraduate students. And we just found that we ended up like tag teaming so many conversations together. And that ended up being part of the genesis of the podcast, which, again, was trying to think about academia, culture and social justice across the STEM humanities divide. And quite honestly, it's been like a way to keep in touch since then, like since we've been so far apart. I'm so grateful that I got to see Liz a couple weeks ago when I was back in Ithaca and also to I think give awesome people that we know that is a woman um, inside adjacent to academia um, more of a platform to share their work, which includes also one of your committee members, Syriana, who is also a former Greenie. Yeah, I was really excited as I was sort of doing my my due diligence. And so I was like, oh, Syriana. And I quickly messaged her on Twitter. I was like, do you guess who I'm talking to next week? And so I was very excited to be able to, that we have that kind of lineage, especially because for those of you who don't know, Dr. Sierra Nippi, um, who teaches, uh, I guess who's a lecturer at um, oh my God, uh, University of Auckland in sociology. She's also Fijian. And so I thought it was really interesting that you like, I think she was the first resident that you, one of the first residents from Green College I think, that you yeah, interviewed? Yeah, possibly. Cause, and the topic I remember was the, um, the question of um, decolonizing um, the university versus indigenizing it. And she was really breaking down the way that these terms have become obviously so popularized and what do they actually mean meaningfully um, for, for actual indigenous people and indigenous studies. And I think that it's, it's one of the conversations has really stayed with me because since I've moved to England and the former heart of empire, basically, I found like people are using the word decolonize with much greater abandon than I've seen in the US or Canada in the very way that, we, as we know, most of us know, tuck and yank critique, you know, that decolonization should not be a metaphor. And yet it's been so readily used and co-opted by the neoliberal, neoliberal corporate university in the UK, it has been quite disconcerting. And that's something I've been trying to navigate, like how do you do certain types of work within and despite an institution and how do you make it legible? So you have to use, you have to sometimes use language that, that you have to push back upon, but also still operate within at the same time. And anyways, it's a conversation I often think about because I was like, I can't even get to that level of sophistication because 
to use indigenized in the UK context has a connotation of racist white Brexiteers that are against immigration, actually, <laughs> as one of my colleagues pointed out when I first arrived. One thing that when I also kind of revisit that conversation that you had with Sariana was um, thinking about like the work that is often done, whether it be in DEI context, but the idea of like feeling. So in a lot of the discussions in your book, the idea that Sarian was like, you know, I'm able to do this work. I'm able to come off in this particular way because of all the, the work that is done behind the scenes with my like significant others who look after me and all those other things. I, I don't know if she wants me to like revisit that. <laughs> Sorry, Sariana, if you're listening to this, I don't know if you want people to be reminded of these conversations you had all those years ago. But nonetheless, it, it kind of like helped bridge a lot of the things that I was reading in your work around this idea of like mm -hmm. unfeeling and what does it take and what is like, how do you build that capacity to be unfeeling, especially when mm -hmm. you're in those like really difficult, um, really sort of high stakes institutional spaces where oftentimes, it's like Sariana was talking about in that chat. Sariana is awesome, if you don't She's know She's incredible. Her and just her talking about like doing a lot of that work of like uh, as a recruiter you know welcoming people or trying to get people from her own community to go to the university being like similar to what you're talking about you talked earlier today about like the the canary or the the goat anyways we'll yes, get to that later the judas goat uh, the judas goat um you know what am i doing sort of inviting my people from my community or people other racialized people into this space am i making am i indigenizing this place or am i just really setting them up for failure but anyways mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i guess in terms of i mean maybe i think we should probably talk about the book unless yeah because <laughs> I think we could this this is not the Sariana podcast um, but it could be um, so perhaps yeah if, you, if you'd like could you tell us a little bit about your book okay yeah. <laughs> um, so again it's the title is Disaffected the Cultural Politics of Unfeeling in 19th Century America and in this work I'm trying to rethink how we consider unfeeling um, which is always tends to be from the position of the powerful that, you know, if when we have the model of social justice or we think about how we justify the study of literature, it's like, it's about persuading people, powerful people that the feelings, lives, tears, emotions of marginalized people matter. Um, and what I'm trying to sort of disrupt then is like, well, doesn't that implicitly put people who are minoritized in different ways in the position of never, of always having to feel, of always having to present their feelings as being legitimate? they're never allowed to be the ones who are unfeeling. And so I say it's just like, what happens when you think about it? Not as oppression from ab above, but as a tactic from below. And I, I, I suggest this as a way of disrupting uh, what Glenn Coulthard calls the colonial politics of recognition um, and sort of disrupting the sort of frameworks of how we think about social justice work, but also how we also read and approach many texts. And in order to do this, I look at um, an archive of work from 19th century America, precisely because the 19th century is seen as the era of sentiment, of sympathy, that if we're going to think about how literature has an impact on the world, often we, we might most likely turn to the, the influence of Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which as much as we now recognize how deeply anti-Black it was, we also say, well, you know, it also led to the, the American Civil War and did all this other important political work. And yet, even at that time, even in the 19th century, there were writers, white, uh, but in my case, I'm mostly looking um, at racially minoritized writers, who pushed against the very framework that um, Stowe set up that has become something America has exported across the world. Because, of course, it wasn't that Uncle Tom's Cabin was simply an American bestseller. It was a global bestseller and continues to be today and has continued to shape the, the global paradigm of how we think about justice and, indeed, how we think about blackness, anti-blackness, and different forms of anti-racist social justice discourse um, and other forms of struggle. And yet, again, what I'm trying to emphasize throughout is that there's always been dissenting modes. And I'm sort of trying to say like, well, 
rather than the usual move of, oh, these people were portrayed as being obdurate and unfeeling and angry, blah, blah, and all these negative uh, are inscrutable and so forth. And then the usual move is to like, no, they had feelings just like them. And they humanized their people. And they this is the first person from this community that wrote about their people. And they showed how human they were too. Instead of doing that, like, what does it mean to actually stay with unfeeling, to stay with the, the type of dissent, the type of transgression, the type of disobedience that is implied by unfeeling and completely reconfiguring what types of feeling are considered to be universal and which ones are always seen as particular and never quite legitimate and so therefore is unfeeling. And so some modes I look at are, say, queer frigidity and oriental inscrutability as perhaps some of the most recognizable, nameable modes that still exist in um, culture today. Um, I guess just before we sort of open it up to the floor, um, I just have some like quick kind of like background questions in terms of for those of us who maybe are not too familiar with some of the language like affect theory, affect sorry affect theory, or just generally, um, you know, why choose the word like disaffect as opposed to like mm -hmm. unfeeling or stoic? Um, could you maybe give us just a little sense around that so we can? Yeah. So there's this whole field of of study called affect studies. And that basically has to do with like studies of emotion, of studies, and but also this broader term affect, which um, people sometimes describe as, you know, the unnameable sense as soon as you walk into a room when you could feel the vibe. Um, and earlier today, I gave this presentation that sort of started with like feeling like sort of the vibe of Twitter discourse around um, affect. So I gave this one tweet where someone said like, oh, one of my students said, well, isn't affect studies just vibe studies? Um, and that's sort of true. It's like the sort of joke of like, well, affect is about thinking about how the sort of connections between people, types of intensities, types of exchange, um, emotions, and sometimes it can be nameable like anger, sorrow, love, fear, hate, and so forth. But often before it rises to that level, it's said, said to be this level of the instinctual, of the, in, the reaction that might be so visceral that, you know, eventually rise to the level of disgust or a type of cringe. But as it happens in the moment, you're not entirely conscious of it. And so there's been a lot of work um, that might even include a long history that goes back to, say, Darwin's expression of emotion in Man and Animals, for instance. Or in my case, I also look back to the philosopher Adam Smith, perhaps best known for Wealth of Nations, in his work, Theory of Moral Sentiments. But in, in the, this usual intellectual genealogy, which includes people like Spinoza, people like Adam Smith, as I mentioned, uh, more recently like Brian Masumi um, and, and others, um, it's a very white intellectual genealogy. And I really take emphasize like sort of the interventions of people like C.N. Nye and Sar Ahmed in terms of disrupting and thinking about like, well, how do these emotions and affects operate, say, like normalize and um, say ideas about the nation and like, you know, this ob obligation of, of happiness, for instance, and like how migrants, if they come to a Western nation, they're supposed to always be grateful. And if you're not grateful, then you should get out of here. These sort of emotional expectations, for instance. Um, and so I'm interested in particularly like reading a lot of queer and feminist of color thinkers like um, Audre Lorde, Gloria Anzaldúa, Sherry Moraga, and others. And then going to the 19th century archive with Suisun Farr, with Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, um, with the entire first generation of black women doctors who have um, left writings for us to study, as also sort of theorizing what affect is in the flesh and sort of particularizing it. And that the the very idea of type of a universal feeling is itself a colonial ruse. And so one way I read against the grain of works like Adam Smith's Theory of Moral Sentiments from the 18th century is to point out that, first of all, this is a long book. This is like 1,000 pages. 
So which probably explains why when it's often cited by American scholars, everyone likes to cite the definition that happens on the first two pages, which is just like he explains how sympathy works as, you know, this thing that, you know, rises within you when you see how someone else is experiencing something and you sort of experience something like that in a very crude way. But as he starts really analyzing what sympathy, this fellow feeling does um, in the abstract, eventually about 800 pages in, he starts talking about it on the global stage. And he starts talking about like which nations are civilized and therefore they have um, access to appropriate feeling, which is those ones that are savage, which are either excessive or absent. And then he has this great line where he complains that there's these, um, for all those who've been in conversation with the savage nations of Asia, Africa, and America, they'll know that they are prone to always hiding how they feel and never like to tell truths. And you're like, wait a second, that's the majority of the world right there. That is actually you misrecognizing this anti-colonial impulse that has to, that's actually trying to thwart this colonial epistemological prerogative that you feel that you have to their quote unquote truths, to their in effective interiorities. And so that's how I'm thinking about that. But why the term uh, disaffection and unfeeling in particular? Unfeeling in first, just because I think it, there's something very capacious about the term that I'm trying to capture. And I say like, unfeeling is a whole range of different types of modes and performances and moments, uh, everyday stances, as well as ones that are both volitional and unconscious. But with disaffection in particular, I'm interested in how Martin F. Manalance and a queer of color theorist has first theorized this um, when thinking about Filipino care workers and the global economy that disaffection has the connotation not just of a relationship to affect and the refusal of it, but also a disloyalty to power and the possibility of alienation. And this is something I really pick up. That if disaffection is also a disaffect, like a, a, a rebuttal to the way that affect is posed as always being universal, it also has the possibility of going against the way that affect, of course, thinking about its multiple um, etymological meanings, has a possibility of disrupting um, causation on the most sense of like who gets to be the actor and who is passive. And if you think on the level of world history, like the world wars, whose wars were people were fighting in, et cetera, for instance. Um, and also on the level of affect as well as on the level of the political. Um, and so I think disaffection has all these particular connotations of, of all this potential of types of resistance. And I'm feeling as a way of naming a whole spectrum of forms of effective disobedience. Thank you so much. Um, that was great. I'm just going to start with um, just asking questions, and um, and any of you are also able to participate as well. So my first question, and don't be alarmed by how long it is, but <laughs> um, for you is in one of the chapters of your book that focuses on white sentimentalism and white universalism in Herman Melville's Benito Sereno, you propose the question: What if we considered Babo? instead of Bartleby in our explorations of refusal. You point out the tendency to uphold Bartleby, a white uh, scrivener, as Melville's universal figure of compliance rather than an arguably equally suitable Melville character, Babo, who commands the slave revolt in Benito Sereno. Funny enough, I have a Bartleby coffee mug <laughs> with his signature, I prefer not to at home. Um, it just shows the degree to which universalized figures like Bartleby are often emblematized and preserved throughout time. My question then for you is how does reevaluating unfeeling attend to the issue of white universalism? 
Thank you. That's such a wonderful, intricate um, question that I think I, I'm really honored to receive that sort of question. Um, yeah, I think that unfeeling, like an insisting, so in my introduction, I talk about my work as what I say is um, a strong presentation of a weak theory. Um, and part of what I mean by that is that by focusing on unfeeling and the space for that is one that is a gesture of defiance and often we'll get responses like, well, isn't that contrarian? Isn't that you know counterintuitive? Aren't you gonna alienate allies? Which is perhaps a fairly common phrase that one might be used to hearing at this point. And yet, despite all that, I think that there's a need to keep space for that type of antisociality. And so that's why I sort of stay with unfeeling, precisely because affect studies insists on how everything is attachments, everything is porousness, everything is sticky. Like we have always about going over boundaries as opposed to actually being able to maintain boundaries. But to pretend that affect and feeling has always been universal in that way is to always to misrecognize the way that some feelings have always been seen as valid. That we could say, for instance, in the case of the US Supreme Court um, judge nominations, the very different uh, composure between uh, the recent um, Justice Katanji, Katanji uh, Jones, I think is the last? Jackson. Jackson, sorry, Katanji Jackson versus like Kavanaugh. Um, and the way that he was able to sort of bluster and like clay, like I love beer and stuff like that, where she had to be like almost superhumanly composed. And on the one hand to sort of say like, yes, there is this double standard, but also to say like, well, should she have had to have be composed in that way? It's also the sort of thing that even if he hadn't like bawled his eyes out and talked about how much he loved beer and assaulting women and whatnot, like it's not, in a way he sort of, he, revealed the lie of the hypocrisy of the roots of the power that actually doesn't matter the extent of your, if you control your emotionality or not. Power is flexible. White supremacy is flexible in terms of its justifications, in terms of what it allows acceptable or not. And it was interesting that what her, Katanji Jackson's nomination like squeaked by, right? With the, the but weren't there just a whole number of politicians, Republican politicians that also walked out? It didn't matter what standards of respectability she met. And so I think that with unfeeling of interesting and also just like disrupting all those sort of no norms around what of expressivity and responsiveness that are the norms for how emotion gets perceived and then which, which for, whose anger, whose sorrow, whose pain gets acknowledged at different times. And also to say that even though, even though claims for justice on the, on the basis of sharing emotion have always been important, that shouldn't be the only game in town. People should not have to be obligated to to participate in that. A lot of what you mentioned just kind of made me think of, as I sort of was preparing for this interview, there was um, an essay of Sarah Ahmed's that I, I, I revisit a lot. It's called Slamming Doors. And there's a quotation where um, she describes, you know, to retain your post, you have to be whiter than white. You are not afforded any goodwill. You have no scope for error. You don't have any scope for being a bit foggy. The level of scrutiny is so high. So just like thinking of the example that you gave with Dr. Akitenji. Uh, Jackson. Jackson. Um, and just this idea of like, there is really no winning. And I think this is a truth that I think many of us, um, as we sort of make our way through these academic spaces, regardless of where we are, that it doesn't matter if you're too nice or not nice enough. It seems we all end up in the same place. Well, not all of us. Oh my God, that's a little bit deterministic. But you know, sometimes mm -hmm. it feels like it doesn't really matter what we do at the yeah. end of the day. Or also, I guess, like, just because, and I think, again, like, I'm someone who has made it to the point of being junior per permanent faculty, like, 
just because I was successful, it doesn't mean that I should then see as valid or to reify what the system is a meritocracy. Like just because we make it doesn't mean that we should suddenly like, you know, pat ourselves on the back and be like, oh, the system is working after all. And I think we, we owe it to ourselves to recognize the way that this, this acceptance is always, and this inclusion is always contingent. And the way that it works for me might not work the same way for many other minoritized colleagues. Hi, Thine. Uh, I actually just thought, uh, because where we are and where you were with this conversation was very, I think around the same point, yet you introduced the concept of the judoscope previously. <laughs> and I was wondering if you could unpack a bit of that, because I think you gave the explanation as to what it was, but I didn't quite understand what it meant in the context of how you were uh, experiencing um, uh, uh, it. Yeah. So um, Brent and a number of other people were able to go to this talk I did earlier, where at the beginning I probably very quickly went through a number of like animal metaphors that might have been a bit confusing and I should have unpacked a bit. So I was saying that like, first of all, to get to the point of having one's first book in the academic monograph in a field, especially that is reifies the monograph as like the, the point of scholarly production, it might seem like, hey, I've made it. It also feels like a type of academic coming of age, this type of le legitimization as a scholar. But I also don't want it to simply end up being, sort of falling into, uh, okay, I, think, I think it'd be readily folded into a, a linear narrative of progress, of meritocracy, of this teleology of like, here, this person just worked really hard and was smart enough. If you just work hard enough, you can be just like this person. And that's what I'm, I'm really hesitant about. And actually, I don't know if some people in this room will remember, like, but I remember when I got my job, I got from this response from many dear people, with, which sort of said, like, Zion, if you made it, then I think that, you know, the system is salvageable. Because I sort of felt like people were saying, like, oh, this, seeing me as sort of the canary in the coal mine, uh, which was this actual practice of, like, having a canary that would be more sensitive to the toxic fumes and then being a sort of gauge of like how toxic a system got, whether people can still get out. Um, and it made, on the one hand, it meant a lot that people saw me as someone that they could look up to. Although it felt sort of strange because I feel like looking up to when people, these are your friends that you're literally like, you look next to as opposed to like up to, or sometimes like I'm also shorter than these friends as well. So like to say also literally, it just feels very strange. But also I realize that the strangeness is also because a sort of discomfort that I have that I don't want to say that that academia is working because I made it. And so that's why I started thinking about Judas Goats. And so Judas Goats were this concept I came across as someone who likes to read a lot of science stuff. And that on the Galapagos Islands, um, which, you know, most famously, I guess, because of Darwin um, coming across the theory of evolution by visiting it with all its many types of finches and so forth. And very unique vegetation. Like there's a problem with the number of goats. I don't remember why the goats died there, probably because of British colonialism, thank you very much. Um, but it's disrupting a lot of the wildlife there. And so what they're having to do is set up what they call Judas goats. How do you attract all these goats? Goats are notoriously ornery. Is to have like one goat that is the betrayer goat. That's the goat in heat. And they bring out all the other goats and then from helicopters, they kill all the rest of the goats. And that's, so that's how I, I definitely worry that I am, that I am the, the Judas goat. Am I leading, I don't want to be like leading other people to their doom, so to speak. And I think that's so difficult because especially when you're a minoritized person in academia or indeed any profession, 
you feel an obligation or you should feel an obligation that you're supposed to give back to your community or do something for also other communities who, and that's something that I try to make space for um, as a Chinese diasporic person. And yet at the same time, even though you, it's important that you are representing something, you can't, that can't be the be all and end all. And sort of this un, sense of unease, disease about being the one to persuade, to lure people into a system where they might not flourish, where you know that there's going to be a lot of problems, say, around health, around there's how whether or not their work will be seen as valid. Um, I don't know, around how navigating immigration and taxes is going to be. Like, that as an international student is not fun, let me tell you. Um, and so, yeah, it's a way of sort of registering my complicated sense of things. I hope that does it help, Brent. <laughs> it makes me think a little bit about your, your talk earlier today. You said this sentence like, how do you hone certain stories of yourself and give people uh, a snippet of a pound of your flesh? I think this was talking a lot about like the context of like doing DEI work and mm. such. Um, and like the, the difficulty of, I think you quote, I don't know, I'm, now I'm just like reading yeah. things that you said. <laughs> to be like, did you say this? No. But, um, and I guess, when, when, as you said, like when you're in these places and there's like, almost an obligation, or sometimes there's like a felt obligation, whether because it's a part of like the narrative, you're like, now that I'm here, I'd like to, you know, leave the doors a little a little wider so that others can come in. Like, how do you kind of navigate that, knowing that, as you mentioned, like, um, you know, sometimes a lot of that, the DEI work relies on like qualitative stories that often have to do with, I'm X from this and this, yes. and I experienced these things. And so how do you, like, knowing that, as I think you mentioned, you know, sometimes, um, insurance and all these other sort of coverage doesn't always make up for a lot of the labor. So like, can you tell us a little mm -hmm. bit about just I, being a goat and all that stuff? Yeah, so I think it's one of those things where like balancing talking about the structural is as important as the individual because if we only focus on this sort of naive representationalism, it ends up being a very individualistic neoliberal approach that then be, like reifies the meritocracy. Like this one person from this community worked really hard and they got here, et cetera, et cetera. As opposed to be like, well, um, if anyone's going to make it, say, in my department as the first person of color, it was probably going to be a middle-class, non-black person of color. <laughs> like, that's also a way, a way to think about it. I don't mean it to diminish my accomplishments, but it also, like, I think is a way to structurally recognize the way that I've been, perhaps, was positioned to have certain opportunities um, and then try and make the most of myself an individual, but I, something that I can't occlude. There's a way that I, on the surface, think I'm far more respectable I seem less dangerous because people could look at me and be like, oh, look at that sweet little model minority. <laughs> my, my, someone is glaring at me right now because also I may have, uh, I readily deploy um, being a nice, quiet little model minority when it suits my needs. Um, thinking about forms of unfeeling and perhaps strategic types of oriental inscrutability because it's, it's a, it's a useful mask. I don't think of it as being disingenuous. I think it's just another aspect of code switching as a type of effective code switching as a type of um, changing between demeanors that's just about language as much as it is about uh, composure. Um, so yeah, I, also the sort of metaphor of the, of the pound of flesh is something this, it's this image that has stayed with me ever since I was little when I had this morbid curiosity with like survival texts about like if you're lost at sea and you're starving, and you have nothing to fish with, you have to just cut off a piece of your own flesh to put on the line and to, and, and, sort of the, and so that's something I think is, when I think about the type of vulnerability is like the sort of pain 
of that type of sharing, but also the necessity. And, and in this case, not just about feeding myself, it's about feeding others. Um, and eventually you get, you figure out how to hone it. And there's something also about the contradiction of having to craft the story which conveys authenticity that only can happen through being polished, um, which has been an issue that goes back for centuries and centuries. And I think that's why for me doing the 19th century archive is so important and the long 19th century archive, because this is not something that's new. This is something that minoritized people have always had to do. Um, that is not a contradiction that authenticity is somehow supposed to be raw and untrammeled. And yet it's always been something which is about craft and it gets held against you. It gets held against you if you don't do it well enough. It gets held against you if you do it well. It's, and yet you have to just play it while knowing it's not the only game in town. As I'm thinking through the issue of citizenship, empire, and the kind of hegemonic governing systems we find ourselves in, I'm reminded again of the term we've mentioned, unfeeling, that appears in your work. You state in your book that, quote, oriental inscrutability is perhaps the most coherent racialized mode of unfeeling, and that, quote, true to life, they give an insight into the thought and feeling of the Chinese who are with us, but not of us. Uh, end quote. What I'd like to ask you has to do with the issue of belonging and the term unfeeling that we've talked a bit about. What do you suppose might be at stake with disaffectedness as a modality? Or rather, how do you see this radical care and resistance, this, quote, impenetrable emotional armor, unquote, as a way toward deep feeling of belonging together? Thank you, and um, especially for the quoting from my final chapter on Oriental Scrutiny in Suisse and Far. Well, I guess first of all, is in American studies, I think there's so much conversation around belonging and how belonging is, in, is intrinsic to citizenship on the level of, of affect, like where do you feel like you belong? And so much of the language of how we make claims around representation and politics have to do with like, do we really feel like we belong? And of course that's, it, implicitly like uh, relates to the I in DEI or EDI or whatever these acronym work, the inclusion, right? And yet I think there's something that's not really satisfactory about that as a model. Do we really want to belong to a place that what was built upon ind indigenous dispossession and genocide on black chattel slavery? Like what does it mean to actually want to belong to that? And I speak this as when the Asian Canadian, Asian American um, discourse in the mainstream so often relies upon saying like, no, I actually am from here. And indeed, like that was something that like I had when I was younger that like, no, when you, people ask me where I'm really from, I was born in Toronto. And like, you know, I'm not from Hong Kong. Yes, my family's from Hong Kong. And yet I realized that in that sort of diasporic distancing, it's a, it's a very convenient disavowal of one regime for, for another that hasn't really fully questioned what am I buying into? What am I trying to claim a stake in? And I, and I say stake in the very clear, like pioneer colonizer sense of it. Um, and so rather than trying to claim a naive form of belonging, I was like, what does it mean to stay with alienation? And across my educational career, it was also about thinking about my experiences differently, not just the clinging to the positive ones and trying to get away from the negative ones, but actually to think like, how might my discomfort, my alienation in certain situations actually be a way of registering a structural problem? 
maybe I didn't want, I shouldn't have to want to belong. Maybe this sort of alienation is a good thing. What if you don't want to be a part of it? And so, for instance, this manifests in my final chapter, talking, thinking about the Chinese diaspora, of refuting the usual claim of like, oh, well, the Chinese sojourners in the late 19th century, like they were just aliens and they were forced not to become citizens, blah, blah. But the thing is, some, a lot of them didn't. And that was also okay. And what does it mean to want to be okay to be an international student, to be a migrant, to be someone who doesn't have to, you know, claim passionate professions of love for the particular nation state, but also understanding that the reason why people do is because there's very real material um, benefits to it. That means real, very real uh, material protections for you and your loved ones. And so I think it's about opening up space for for all those possibilities to understand, like, why do people participate in the politics of Mexicanism? Not because they've imbibed the ideology, but because there is material necessity and the and the performance of like effective claims to belonging does a type of political work. Um, but at the flip side, also like to also see like you might not want to participate in that type of coercion. Hi, thank you so much, Zion. It's been really great listening to uh, this discussion, particularly around um, just affect and this approach, this uh, understanding and feeling as resistance, I think has just got me thinking a lot about many different aspects of my own work. Um, I guess uh, with what you were saying about um, drawing on black feminist theory um, and uh, and but also about like the ways in which this resistance is very much um, so it's it's about subversion as much as it is and and uh, I, I guess my question kind of I, I'm just wondering about like kind of the gaze um, and how that maybe plays into it because there's almost a sense of like looking or perception that comes into play in thinking through what you're saying about how we how Typically, there's an expectation that of uh, affect an affective um, expression looking a specific way, mm -hmm. and then being registered or read in such a way, and then to what, and thus in uh, uh, unfeeling then can be understood as a, as a tactic against that. And I wonder, I see in, what, in the examples that you're giving also in in like in unfeeling of oh, the ways in which the gaze is allowed to kind of shift, perhaps mm -hmm. um, towards. Uh, you know, unfeeling, not necessarily being a lack thereof of affect, perhaps. And I was wondering, I guess, my question is, in unfeeling or um, in the disaffective, like what happens to affect almost? Um, is there maybe something in, in it being this like resisting tactic? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, thank you. So I think there's the two parts of the question that I'll, I'll try to be addressing is one is um, having to do with, uh, with the gaze and perhaps visual culture specifically, and the second having to do with like is unfeeling really fully antisocial in absence. Uh, perhaps to, to the second one first is like part of what I, I analyze is to to give space for the antisocial and for the possibility of absence negation, but also to show that uh, if we read uh, queer and feminist of color thinkers, we could see that it's not simply antisocial, but might be the ways of opening up other forms of sociality. It's also about opening up the possibility for the fleeting, embryonic, insurgent possibility of other affects, other structures of feeling to arise. And I think that's how solidarities can be created. Um, and to, to the gaze into visual culture. So that's sort of like a running thread throughout my chapters. And in the very first chapter on Benito Serena, I do a, a sort of deep dive into how race science was um, so dependent upon, upon the visual and the, and the boom in visual culture in the 19th century with like the advent of cheap printing. And that is sort of the way that 
sort of the racial difference became as evidence as what people can see for themselves. And it, it's the most insidious type of, of knowledge when it's something that's so self-evident, it poses as natural. Um, and then the sort of critique that I, what I do with reading Melville is to show like he shows that from the, from the perspective of his, of, of his Amasa Delano, who's this American white captain, he pays attention to white faces and always looks for expression, expressions, and yet he ignores black faces to the point of just seeing them as heads. And I think it sort of ends up um, reproducing that sort of very different attention to features and to the nuance, which features have nuance versus which ones are easily quantifiable. And I think this helps to um, think differently also of that final image of Benito Sereno, which is Babo's severed head um, after the, the failed slave revolt, and the way that he, his way of navigating this whole regime of expressivity tries to violently convert him into a specimen for race science eventually. And indeed, so many of the heads that white supremacist race scientists at what are now the Ivy Leagues, how they got those skulls had to do with American imperialism and expansion, that it had to do with things like, and if you look at a text like Crania Americana by Samuel George Morton, he had skulls that were being sent back by the ongoing war with, with the Seminoles, for instance. Um, and so like these violences are, are very much real and I think that's something that um, Melva's trying to, to register. But at the same time, like I have moments such as in my fourth chapter, which is about black feminist approaches to scientific epistemology. And um, I think this is one amazing text that hasn't, really had treatment yet of how brilliant it is by one of the first black women to receive a medical uh, degree in the US, which is called The Eye and Its Appendages. And it is the text that Rebecca Cole had to write to get her M um, MD. Um, and people sort of see it as like her doing sort of this checkbox exercise. But when I went to the archives, I decided to like say like, well, what is about the choice of her writing about eyes? I found out like looking through the database of all the other and, uh, and, well, medical theses that were written by other women at this college, none of them had written about eyes before. I also recognize that like she, the work that she managed to accomplish in it is remarkable because most of them you can see like people clearly run out of energy when I was reading a whole bunch of these that also in her same year where people just end to be like, and now I've come to the end of this thing. Like people just ran out of steam. But in her case, and like people just like sure just wrote that in her case, the title page is beautiful. She put all this work into making this thing about the eyes of work of visual art because she's thinking that she is the one who's in the possession of the gaze. She also decides to end by quoting um, Sir William Lawrence, who's ophthalmologist and surgeon to Queen Victoria herself. And so this it was this very clear claiming of whose gaze is it, and it is, it is her gaze, and it's her her gaze that has the suddenly the, has the authority of the medical uh, I guess whole whole medical episteme. Um, which at the very time when this would still have been when J. Marion Sims was basically creating the field of gynecology by experimenting on, on anesthetized enslaved black women. Um, and so even in the midst of this, she was claiming her prerogative, her gaze. And again, by quoting, ending by, with a direct quotation, um, Sir William Mortlarth, when I looked him up, he's best known for doing a lot of stuff in eye science. But it turns out he also, of course, participated in race science at the time. And he was sort of like this wishy-washy, like monogenesis. But even when, but he has some, when going through his text, there's some 
quite anti-black awful stuff that I'm sure she would have come across. And so she's also making this choice of being like, I'm citing this man, but I'm not giving doing it, I think, to give authority. I'm doing it as a way of ending with a flourish, as a way of getting my authority to get the degree, to do the sort of work that I intend to do. And Dietrich went on to do so many foundational like public health things for um, black communities um, across Philadelphia. Um, and I think that's something to sort of bear in mind, like whose gaze, which gaze, and in her case, really thinking the eye and its appendages, she's also thinking about the literal embodied eye. We could also see her perhaps as theorizing this early version of a type of theory in the flesh, that she understands that even though throughout she doesn't talk about race at all, she understands that as the only black woman in her university and a dean, like one of the first to get this degree, she's always gonna be embodied, but she's sort of playing with holding that racialization at bay, even while being very clearly talking about uh, like the physical eye. And even things like she talks about, say, different forms of um, sexually transmitted infections and so forth, at a time when, of course, black women were, well, black women's sexuality continues to be pathologized um, in relation to disease, but she's doing it by showing that she has the power to cure it. She's able to talk about syphilis and gonorrhea without being implicated by it. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm just going on this whole rant because like, I feel like it's one part of the, the book that like, it was really great to be able to work with because I think that it's something that people have men mentioned historically in passing, but really considering why did she decide to do that and what did she manage to do? And again, when you read it across the other, these other theses, most of the people just don't bother with their title page. They just sort of end with a, you know, by running out of steam with how much time they had left in the examination. And she's the only one that when I read all the different theses, like that even mem bothered to memorize a direct quotation. She was very deliberate about what she's leaving and what, what, how she's thinking about the gaze and the, the gazes that, that were to come. Thank you, Zion, for your talk. Um, really enjoyed listening to you. And I think this is, um, it's been a while since we spoke. And I think the last time we spoke was on your podcast. We were discussing nationalism and rise of nationalism. <laughs> and uh, we're seeing that around the world right now. Um, I'm absolutely, my work is the intersection of rise in Hindu nationalism in India and Muslim women's response to that, uh, but also seeing rise of nationalism everywhere else. Um, and so, definitely building up on what you were saying about citizenship as well, like certain bodies are landscaped outside of the nation. And as you were saying, like with that, uh, there are certain emotions as well that are being landscaped outside the nation. And yet you were pointing towards how unfeeling in itself can be maybe um, a point for starting a resistance or like bringing together communities or building a community. And I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on that, as well as um, what do you think are dangers around that, given that it is like there is zero public acceptability um, of that right now with emotions on rise everywhere? Mm -hmm. um, and also like very right-wing emotions of hatred and fear and dehumanization. Thank you, Wajiha. And I think your question has many different components to it. So I'm just trying to think it through. I think there's a problem that, many of us are trying to think through now is recognizing the, the limits of the nation state. And yet obviously that the problem of statelessness is a very real material problem. And so the state seems to be in some ways the limit of our imagination. And yet it's one that's clearly inadequate to the task of actual care. Um, and I don't, I don't have an answer for that. Cause that's, I mean, I'm just not smart enough or ambitious enough, but, but I hope to be, I think I'm in conversation with people that I, I would hope other forms of chosen belonging, as it were, um, that perhaps would allow us to rethink a lot of these convergences. And I think that that is something that, that 
the nation state perhaps is, is allows for the convergence of the site of possibility, but it cannot predetermine or overdetermine what those possibilities are, although it tries it tries to. Uh, so I don't know if that's partially responding to what what you're asking. Um, I guess another part of it is why this, another reason why I choose disaffected as a term is because, and this is an interesting sort of pushback I've gotten in talks variously in America and in the UK, was to say like, well, what about disaffected Trump voters? What about disaffected Brexiteers? And indeed, in popular culture post-2016, that's most often how I feel like we see that word being used, which is that people who have always been the center of attention suddenly are feeling disaffected and they're still the center of attention. And it was still this, the feature of all the, the, the New York Times or the Times op-eds and like, it just ends up being the same old, same old, feeling slightly decentered and being like, you know, the sort of anti-Semitic replacement theory writ large kind of concern. And so that's why I'm interested in, again, thinking about disaffection and unfeeling as a tactic from below. Like who doesn't, who's not allowed to be disaffected? Like I guess a, a comparison that I, I see in terms of conversation has to do with like, whether racialized people should vote, particularly like black and indigenous people, when obviously they've been, the, the state has been founded on their very dispossession to begin with. And the thing is like, I guess that what I've seen some friends say is like, just pointing out like, well, they've always voted because they know that there's never a perfect choice. Um, and like it's sort of a, perhaps an idealistic white liberal illusion to imagine that there's a pure choice and there can be a choice that is made without being complicit without and a, a choice that is somehow perfect and yet we know that many other people know that there's never a true outside to a system you just do the work where you can there's no escape um i think there's also something about the diaspora that i've talked about with another friend of like sometimes in, in diaspora there can be this naive nostalgia for homelands that ends up being a sort of cultural ethnocentricism in the end and a naive one at that, that sort of erases all the complexity in you know, the quote unquote home country, or ends up becoming like forms of like tankyism, for instance. Um, and the real th problem is that no matter where you go, there are problems and you have to deal with them. You can't escape. <laughs> and I think that's what people want. You want to be able to, once you are, and I think it's a real, imp I understand the impulse. When you're able to, when you're analyzing how complicated and ugly and dirty things are where you are, you want to be someplace where you can get away. You want to be a place where you can be morally pure, but there isn't a place, such a place. I think as we are approaching 920, um, I'd just like to take a moment to like, thank you so much for joining us this evening, unless, do we, is that a question for him? No. Um, yeah, we really appreciate you taking the time to consider even sitting down with this humble oh, little podcast. Oh, come on. Oh, come on. Please. It's an honor. <laughs> it's also great to have a former resident. And there's something, I think, really lovely about seeing how some of the connections, even if you were here a couple of years ago, how we're all sort of connected with one another mm -hmm. in terms of our interests or our experiences. And so I think it's very, um, you know, I know you mentioned a lot about, like, this not being the only show in town. Well, I'm glad that you're, like, the second show that's coming in <laughs> as well. Um, so especially just uh, to be introduced to your work and I know for, for a lot of us, um, it's, uh, yeah, it's heart hardening. And also, you know, we really, what I really appreciate about like other folks in academia is just like the, the language and the sort of thought that you helped kind of like create space for us, even though 
as you mentioned, it can be very difficult. And so I just want to like acknowledge that and also just thank you for spending time with us this evening. And also thank you to all the returning greenies. I know we all have very complicated relationships to this space. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's a, a laughter for those of you who can't hear. Um, Edit that out later. <laughs> yeah, um, tune in for our bonus episode on things we liked and did not like about Green College. Um, <laughs> but um, but uh, and it's just nice to see all of you here today and some of the new greenies and you know just a sort of an intersection of space. And also, just randomly, I think it's really cool that like you talk to Sariana and then you talk to me. Something about just Fijians and bringing like really quality programming. To, to <laughs> I don't know. No, that's <laughs> wonderful. I also say like, and truly, I am honored because. Like, I think that so much of the support for my work honestly has felt like has come from people who are graduate students who are otherwise still early career. And I feel like there's a real sense of mutual recognition that it does seem like, you know, I am further along in my career and I don't want to dismiss that sort of materially, but like it feels for me like a, a very sort of lateral mode of recognition. And I really, I really, really appreciate it. And honestly, it makes me glad that I created this work that I felt really scared about doing and I wasn't sure if I'd stay alive to do it. But I was like, this, this makes it worth it. It made, it made it worth it. Thank you. For our listeners who are interested in learning more about mm -hmm. these conversations, make sure to check out Zion's new book, Disaffected, The Cultural Politics of Unfeeling <laughs> in the 19th Century America. Check out their, their podcast, PhDivas, wherever you listen to your fine podcast products. And is there uh, anything else you'd like to... Yes, I'd also say that um, if you can, try not to buy the book on Amazon. <laughs> Sorry, this, this is no shade to Serena. <laughs> um, but not just for labor practices, but it seems like... like um, Amazon is doing this sort of print-on-demand, so you're not getting any of the, the beautiful hard work that was done by either my artist friend Lucia or by our Duke University Press Workers um, Union um, uh, member Amy Harrison, who is the book designer, because it's supposed to have like this lovely gold foil on the cover as well as like this wonderful texture on it as well. Um, and so, um, anyways, if you buy it from Duke University Press, if you're in North America or if you're anywhere in the rest of the world from combined academic publishers, you could get, I think, the, the actual, uh, what it's supposed to be like, and also a discount code for listeners, 30% off with the code E21YAO. That's my last name, Yao. So save money and get yourself something, self something pretty. <laughs> Ooh, a discount code. We've really made it as a podcast. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much, everyone, and we hope, to, we hope you join us again sometime. Patchworks is a podcast brought to you with the support of Green College at the University of British Columbia. Music composed and arranged by Judith Valerie Engel and Gabriel Lanstead. Audio editing by Olivia Wheeler. Thank you for listening. We hope you can join us again. Thank you.